1: Visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Good evening and welcome. Uh, The title of the discussion we're going to have this evening is, rather provocatively, The Future of Health When Death Becomes Optional. Now, since no male member of my family has made it beyond 73, this is a subject which is close to my heart, Uh, my, you know, carotid heart, my heart, which is going to pack in slowly. Um, I have a particular interest, uh, I must admit, in uh, intermittent fasting in calorie restriction, uh, because that is one of the few things that has been actually shown consistently in animal models, at least, to extend life. And we may come across that. Uh, We may talk about nutrition. As well, I mean, curiously enough, uh, doctors get taught nothing about nutrition. I was taught nothing at medical school, my son was taught nothing. I don't know how well-versed you all are in nutrition, but I find that curious because obviously nu- nutrition plays a significant role in how long we live and particularly in how healthy we live, and that may be one of the things we want to talk about as well. How many of us actually want to live to 200 and what would the consequences be? But um, I think it's time to start. And we're going to be beginning with Dr. Daniel Kraft over here. And um, Daniel uh, comes from the Singularity University in California. And uh, there they like to... It's a sort of think tank, and they like to address big issues. And there really is nothing bigger uh, than aging, I would have thought. Um, he, is, um, he works in STEM He works in stem cell technology, and he's also a prolific inventor. So let's start. Great. Thanks.
0: So uh, thanks very much. It's terrific to be here in London, because as you can tell from my accent, I was actually born here down the street at Royal Free. Um, But I come from Silicon Valley, uh, where we look quite a bit at technology. And what we want to focus on a bit tonight, in addition to longevity, is a bit of the future of health and medicine from the angle of prevention, diet, nutrition, um, better forms of doing smarter, earlier diagnostics, therapy, more precise and personalized, and how we can all be participatory and play a role altogether in the future of health and medicine. So whether you come from Mass General, where I trained as a resident, or I was just in China at a hospital that sees 10,000 outpatients a day, or visiting the Royal Royal London Hospital, (laughs) jet lag, Um, in many ways, um, healthcare still hasn't changed in its practice and form. We're still often in old mindsets, in old silos thinking of healthcare in sort of buckets of body parts and specialties. But we're now in this amazing new genomic age, this connected age, this digital age. I think we can think out of the old mindset of sick care to one of really health care. When I think about sick care, it's really today's world, intermittent data, an occasional blood pressure check, EKG, uh, blood sugar or, bl- or blood pressure you might fax to your doctor. And so we're quite reactive. We wait for the heart attack or the stroke or the lump to be discovered at stage three. And I would argue we can move to a new era today with more continuous data and flow and be much more proactive individually and in society. Now, we'll talk about technology, but beyond that, it's really the incentives that drive healthcare. You know, in in the U.S., we're mostly fee-for-service. We get paid to do more procedures, more biopsies. Therefore, we're spending 80% of our care on folks who already have advanced and chronic disease. As we're starting to shift to value-based care, we're rewarding keeping people healthy. You're going to be more rewarded for keeping yourself healthy and driving longevity. And also, there's a change in where healthcare is happening. No longer in the clinic, the ICU, the, the ER. We're driving healthcare to our homes and increasingly onto our own bodies. So the Internet of Things is coming to the Internet of Healthcare. And we have a whole new set of tools, right? And our pockets are now these new magical medical devices. They're writing Moore's Law, the power of computation that keeps doubling every 18 to 24 months, which is why our smartphones are more powerful in computation and speed and price performance than the best supercomputer from MIT in the 70s. And they're is an example of exponential technology. And some of that mindset's coming to healthcare and bringing us this new era of what's often called digital health or connected health or mobile health. I think we will just call it health. We don't call it digital banking or digital movies, but it does provide a new platform and way to think about things, not just in terms of Moore's law, but the convergence of all these fast-moving fields from genomics to virtual reality to artificial intelligence. So we need to think exponentially and convergently uh, and be disruptive and self-disruptive, just like many worlds have shifted around us. We've even seen Uber do a pilot where you could do Uber Health, press a button, and a doctor would come to your house or apartment within three hours. Um, you know, not sure what kind of doctor you get, but you'd get one. So, um, and they can rate you, and you can rate them. So that transparency element's here. And as was mentioned, I I get a lucky place to look at this convergence as the chair of medicine at Singularity University, based in the heart of Silicon Valley, where we bring folks across the spectrum, from patients to physicians to pharma to devices, and rethink things from this convergent arena. Uh, Because a big focus now could be on true health and prevention. We'll talk about, you know, genetics in a bit, but it's our behaviors over time that are much more impactful. And now we have a way of sort of measuring our behaviors. How many of you have on some Fitbit or jawbone on the wrist? You know, you probably lost one too. But these technologies are enabling us to quantify things, like our steps and our sleep, which are, sleep's important to your, your health, and sitting's and new smoking. Uh, but if you can start to measure these elements and now start to move from quantified self to quantified health, we can prescribe connected devices, blood pressure cuff scales, and your clinician as soon going to see that information and use that. And we can measure much more than our steps. Connected glucometers that talk to your smartwatch, digital tattoos, connected jewelry, from wearables to incitables to even trainables, things that can uh, buzz you in the back and get your posture aligned. All sorts of things are emerging that can enable us to have insights uh, and data in real time. Wi-Fi can be used, actually, to be measuring uh, data from your own home. So we're entering an era where our digital exhaust will soon be continuous. And we can use that in smart ways. Our smartphones can be a, a, a mirror or a, a measure of our mental health, something so important to health and medicine. And the data is starting to flow through our smartphones, uh, things like Apple Health Kit. Soon that data will flow to your health system, through the NHS, where you can make sense of it, integrate that data into sort of a health score and nudge you in terms of both prevention, diagnostics, and therapy. Think about your modern car. Modern cars today have... 300, 400 sensors on them. You don't care about any one sensor. You kind of care when your check engine light goes on. What if you had a check engine light for your body? Or the integration of all these elements that give you a bit of a healthcare GPS. You know, Daniel, go right to the gym, don't, not to have fish and chips. You know, kind of uh, guiding you on all these elements using smart data to give you a lens to see future you. Future if you're uh, working out, uh, future if you keep having uh, fish and chips for, for breakfast, right? And that could be a powerful lever. Or smoking, for example. Um, What if you could see yourself or your children or your patients before smoking after smoking, blending augmented reality to change our, our our elements. Virtual reality is here. I just received my $600 Oculus Rift, but you can get a $6 cardboard version and <laughs> be in virtual worlds, which is now being used, for example, to educate surgeons. Uh, just down the street at Royal Hospital, they're doing a real-time virtual reality and allowing you to see a surgery in actually real-time. I just came from there today. Shafi Ahmad and colleagues at Medical Realities literally today streamed to about 2,000 people watching a surgery in real-time around the world in 3D. Amazing possibilities there, including for exercise and and beyond. Old-school technologies can help our health, longevity, and prevention. Things like yoga and meditation. You can actually measure your brain waves with consumer devices and gamify mindfulness, prescribing this to someone with anxiety or depression instead of a drug, for example. We can start to now digitize our genomes. It used to be millions of dollars. The price of sequencing has dropped at double the rate of Moore's Law to about $1,000 today. It comes with an app. Soon your clinician will see that data. Here's my data related to athletics. And sadly, I want to go and work out, but my, uh, I have trouble getting out of bed in the morning to work out. But I have an excuse. As you see, my motivation genes are low. So uh, uh, some of these things can be uh, complex. Beyond genomics, we're in the era of the proteome, the exposome, the microbiome, the bugs in our gut impact everything from obesity to inflammatory bowel disease. We're learning to do fecal transplants to cure folks of bad GI infections. We're entering an era where you can sequence your own mo- microbiome for about 50 pounds and crowdsource that data. New diagnostic tools are coming through crowdsourced trials. Medical tricorders have been developed that you can touch your forehead, pulls down your temperature, your heart rate, your blood pressure, will talk to your smartphone, overlay with artificial intelligence to make make sense of it. Or instead of bringing your urine to the clinic, you can dip it and use your app to take a picture and send that data directly to your physician, to the NSA, whoever else wants the information. Lots of potential there. (laughs) Artificial intelligence is here in healthcare. Soon it's going to be much more intelligence augmentation. It's going to augment all elements of diagnostic and therapy to make sense of this and hopefully empower the patient-doctor relationship. All these technologies can be enabling and uh, particularly that important patient-doctor relationship. Very briefly, what's the future of therapy? We want more tuned, precise therapeutics. Everything from tuned gene therapy, which is coming with CRISPR and beyond, to the ability to use electroceuticals, not just pacemakers for the heart, but for the brain, for the bowel. These are really becoming interesting connected digital devices from our bodies, which leads to potential issues. Who owns the data from our bodies? Who maintains the privacy? We're starting to prescribe apps from everything from pregnancy to pre-op care to post-op care. Uh, For things like diabetes, connected glucometers that have social networks built into them. The new drug is really you. You can be the CEO or at least the COO or co-pilot of your care using these new tools and connect and have a virtual visit as opposed to driving three hours for that one-hour wait for the 12-minute visit. So many ways now to connect interactively. Telemedicine is here. Robotics is playing a role in everything from surgery to delivering your drugs to wearable robotics to enable the disabled who might be paralyzed to walk. And you might notice that exoskeleton has 3D printed components. 3D printing is coming to healthcare from replacing the old fashioned cast with one that might be printed in the emergency room to printing prosthetics. You can print yourself. I have Mini-Me in my pocket, for example. He's cute. Uh, But imagine I have a patient missing part of their face to print a prosthetic. Or, for example, empowered patients like my friend Stephen, who had a brain tumor, who 3D printed his own tumor to empower surgeons to take it out in a smarter way. This is a life-size version. So lots of things that are emerging, even drones to deliver drugs and vaccines, to uh, uh, defibrillators, to uh, potentially even drone ambulances. Many things are converging. And finally, we can democratize healthcare. Things using smart technology can bring us uh, information anywhere. The bottom billion have SMS phones, soon they'll have smart connected phones and be connected to the cloud, which can again enable smart proactive healthcare anywhere. Last point, discovery. We can all be participants in the future of healthcare, speeding up clinical trials. Today you can download multiple trials from Parkinson's to autism to asthma and understand and crowdsource that data in very interesting, uh, um, smart, and cost-saving ways. Because the future will be kind of like we drive today. When you drive with Google Maps or Waze, you share some private information, your speed location. In exchange, you can crowdsource a map and look at the traffic and get information back that changes your trajectory. What if we crowdsourced healthcare? What if you cannot just be a blood donor or an organ donor, but a data donor as well? So I think that's part of the future. So think exponentially. Remember that things are moving very, very quickly. You want to be like Wayne Gretzky and skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it is today. And also think convergently, whatever field you're in, it's the overlap and the convergence of AI, sensors, big data, 3D printing, nanotech, you know, empowered empathy through these new tools that can really shift healthcare and move it from sort of where we've been, a sick care model, intermittent and reactive, to a much more proactive model where we're all participatory, moving from continuous to proactive health and medicine. So as William Goodson has famously said, the future's already here, not just evenly distributed. And it's up to all of us. Not to just sort of think about and imagine the future or predict it, but go out there and boldly create it together. So, with that, thanks very much.
1: Thank you very much, Daniel. Tony was saying beforehand that until you've seen Daniel in full flow, you haven't lived. I'm just intrigued because I can see you've got a wristband on. You've got presumably that some, oh, two of them. Uh, who here has uh, digital technology on them that's measuring bits? How many hands up? See if the Brits, if you did this in California, presumably everyone would stick both hands up. With the... uh, any of our other participants wearing anything? I'm afraid not, no. I'm afraid you're amongst a very conservative lot. I must admit, I used to work on a programme called Tomorrow's World, so I am both incredibly moved but also deeply sceptical by the things you're um, talking about, and we'll address that. Um, Tony, what do you think?
2: Um, So I always think it's breathtaking when I hear Daniel talk, and every time I gain new insights, and I've been going over to his... uh, 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 sort of conference and event that he organises uh, in San Diego every year for three years now, I think, and um, it's just what I find sometimes in the NHS in or in England or in Britain generally is sometimes we we just lose that can-do spirit. You know, we have a history in our country. I think we have more Nobel Prize winners per head of the population than any other country on the planet, and yet at delivering that invention into something that is an innovation that's taken up across the world. Very Mm. often that's done better abroad than it is in this country. And you go to America and you see this, anything's possible, we can do it. And I try to go there just to get an Projection of can-do, <laughs> enthusiasm, and anything's possible to try and bring that back to England. And my batteries run low at about the end of the year, so I go back and get some more. It's, um, who knows what's going to come true in all of this? The thing is there, is, there are so many things out there that are being taken out of the hands of doctors and put into the hands of patients that I think that it's a really exciting time to be alive, a really exciting time to be in medicine, but a, a, uh, there's never been a better a more empowered time to be a patient or a citizen um, uh, moving forward looking at healthcare.
3: Pedro? Well, I, I'm very impressed with all of the technologies that are being developed, but, I mean, if I can play devil's advocate, the, the question to me is how many people are really going to adopt this technology? I mean, California people are well, some of them are very health-conscious, but surely people who smoke, they are aware that it's bad for them. So, are they going to be convinced of stopping smoking by this? Some people don't, don't see that. I remember a, a bumper sticker I saw in America where you see these things, which said don't smoke, exercise, eat right, still die. LAUGHTER um, <laughs> So do you see a lot of... people really employing this, people who who aren't already having a healthy diet or a healthy lifestyle? Well, I think uh, just like
0: with personalized and precision medicine, um, behavior change and everyone's individual carrots and sticks are quite diverse. And it's not just about giving someone a wearable device and an app that's one size fits all. We need to understand your incentives, whether you want to live to 120 or want to run a marathon at at age 90. Um, And so I think part of the potential here is to... um, leverage, you know, you want points, he wants badges, I want dollars. Other people are leveraged in new ways. And we may do a Myers-Briggs for behavior change when you're coming to the physician or the, uh, uh, your nurse practitioner to help wire your prevention or diagnostics or therapy. Um, so, part of this is not just these little gadgets, but learning how to leverage that and use it to nudge you in smart ways to uh, hopefully do more prevention. So, just like the car insurance companies in the US now, if you're a bad driver, they'll measure your speed with your mobile phone. Um, we're starting to see folks get uh, lower insurance premiums or bonuses if they're joining the gym, walking 10,000 steps, and doing healthier behaviors. So, the levers are coming.
1: Thank you very much, Daniel. We'll come back to you, I think, later. Um, I'm moving on now to Professor Tony Young. Who is a surgeon and an inventor? So um, somehow he's managed to fit in the time to develop four startup companies. He's also the NHS's National Clinical Director for Innovation, which sounds very sexy. Okay, Tony.
2: Thank you very much. Um... <clears throat> So, it's a great um, uh, honour and pleasure to be here tonight talking to you and a great task to follow the very wonderful Daniel Kraft. So, I hope you're not expecting the whirlwind of uh, uh, technology. Um, so, what I thought I would do is try and tell you a little bit about the challenges we face, not just as a nation in our healthcare system, but as, a, as the human race and the problems we face in living longer. This was the title we were given. And I'm not sure that I agree with the title at the moment, but the simple fact is people are living longer than they ever have before with more chronic conditions. And what are we as a nation going to do about that? So if you look now, we had a healthcare system that was founded in this country around 70 years ago and it was founded on the base of the problems we faced, which were largely acute medical conditions. So people died of infectious diseases, they had heart attacks, they had stroke, they died of cancer very early on, and very early on in the disease phase. But here we are 70 years later, and we've made major inroads, we vaccinate our population into heart attacks, strokes, and cancer. People are now living longer and surviving those conditions more than they ever have, and I think a child born now can expect to live to 81 or 82 in our country, when I was a lad, that was in the mid-70s, so in a very short period of time, people are living a lot longer. But now 70% of our healthcare budget in this country is spent on chronic disease management. So does the uh, system we set up 70 years ago based around acute care and hospital service as well now as it did back then? So around two years ago, we got a new chief executive in the NHS, uh, Simon Stevens, who came in and brought together some senior leaders across the NHS and said, we've got some big problems coming. People are living longer with their chronic diseases. How, as a nation, are we gonna cope with that? How are we going to deal with that? And he came out with the five-year forward view, which was our look at how we might continue to provide a high-quality healthcare system free at the point of delivery, uh, centrally funded uh, for our nation. Now, the three key points of that five-year forward view, were well, we have to get serious about prevention. We have this health and well-being gap. I think it's 20% of our population smoke, a third drink too much alcohol, and more than half our population are now overweight or obese. And the statistics are, within the next few years, more people will die in our country from obesity-related causes than cancer. And that is for an entirely preventable condition. So you're going to see a number of announcements coming out. Some have already come. You've seen a sugar tax coming forward. No longer can we just say we need to get serious about prevention. We have to do something about it. As a, as a nation, as a race on the planet, we have to do something about it. And then there's a care and quality gap. Can we reimagine healthcare? Can we rethink it? Do we need all these acute hospitals when 70% of our healthcare budget at the moment is spent on chronic disease management? Do we need to move care closer to patients in their homes? How are we going to do that? Well, we have our vanguards and our new models of care based around more joined up working between primary and secondary care, reimagining urgent care, smart care in your home. How can we leverage technology? How can we help you live happier, healthier, longer lives in your homes, in your care homes, and keep... You in the environment and in your community. And then lastly, Lord Carter came out with his report in February this year looking at our 30 billion gap that the five year forward view identified and how can we address that? Do we need to always do what we did? Can we do new things better? Very often, leveraging technology, you can reduce costs, not increase them. So we faced all those issues with the five-year forward view, and then this came along, some of which what Daniel has spoken about already, what I call the personalized, democratized healthcare revolution. So doctors, I don't think in the future, are going to be the gatekeepers of healthcare as they have been historically moving forward. More and more things are going to be put in the hands of the patients. Now, whether it's all the omics that Daniel's uh, described or it's this data analytics and digital health and those technology, the advanced technology and artificial intelligence, if you see some of the things companies like Google and others are taking forward at the moment, it's, it's quite impressive. But social networking is having an impact, but our healthcare system needs to be human focused, not just patient focused, because patients are already sick. How can we bring people who are well into the design of our new healthcare system and keep them well and encourage them to do so? So I thought I would give you a couple of there are dozens of examples I could have picked of some of the most amazing things I get to see. So as a little boy, I was always an inventor, and I've made several new medical devices and, and taken them through in companies. And um, now, at NHS England, in my job as the National Clinical Lead for Innovation, the world tends to beat its way to our door to show us the latest, greatest technologies. So I feel like a little lad that's woken up in a toy shop because I get to play and see all these things, although I haven't driven a Formula One car yet. Um, so, McLaren. The largest experiment that happens on our planet is a Formula One race. 20 cars on the grid, more than 200 sensors in each car. During the two hours of a Formula One Grand Prix, more than 248 terabytes of data are generated. That is broadcast to 10 analytic centers across the world. And during the race, 150,000 live simulations of that mass data set takes place. Now, to give you an idea of the size of that, the largest, I believe the largest library in the world is the National Library of Congress in America, which holds 240 terabytes of data. A Formula One Grand Prix generates 248. It's truly astounding. McLaren have announced they're moving into healthcare. Why is the body different? Why can we not take those analytics, those things they have learned, and apply them to our health as we move forward? So I think we need to watch this this year because I think there'll be some really exciting announcements coming. And then the next example I wanted to give you was something like a real benefit of sharing our healthcare data from the NHS. There are some things we can do in this country that no one else across our planet could do. Now this is a picture of the team at Imperial College London and the lady in the back with the glasses I've had the privilege of meeting recently is Professor Nina Modi who is the current president of the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health. And she over the last 10 years with her colleagues and team have brought together a single electronic patient record for some of our most vulnerable citizens which are our preterm infants that are born so in this country if you go to one of 220 hospitals your electronic records as a neonate is on one uniform platform it can be shared across all those units whether you go to a regional neonatal unit or a local one or get transferred to the tertiary center and your whole record is shared we have I think over 590,000 live electronic records on that at the moment And every single parent, so far we have 100% of parents in our country of these neonates have agreed not only to share that electronic record between the hospitals and the different units, but also to allow that to be used for research. So rare conditions like necrotizing enterocolitis where these little neonates need an operation quickly to sort their bowel out. We are now gaining insights how we can better manage that. Breastfeeding, why is it so good in some areas and not so good in others? So we can really use live data sets. And because of fragmented healthcare systems across the rest of the planet, they can't have those insights. They can't gain them. So we've got some real benefits here in this country. And lastly, I couldn't resist because Daniel talks about lots of uh, technology. What's happened to the doctor's bag over the last 5,000 years of history? Well, if you look back... In ancient Egypt 5,000 years ago, you will see a number of drills and saws and chisels and, 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 and various other things. And then if you look in Arabic texts around 500 years ago in the medieval period, just next to that, it's hardly changed at all what doctors were doing. And then you come to 100 years ago and we moved things into a nice black bag and there were sphygmomanometers and other things that had come forward. And then to what is perhaps the modern-day gold standard of what a doctor holds in his bag – what's the big disruption what has everything Daniel said and you'll see some of the tech in this next slide is this is what's happened it's no longer in my view a doctor's bag it is a digital patient's kit Everything, so I'm married to a GP, everything that she carries around with her bag in there is available to you now, largely to connect to your smartphone or something else, whether it's the diagnostic apps or Google's great contact lens. 50 cents a day to transmit your serum glucose to your smartphone continuously. Wow, it's amazing what we could do. All sorts of uh, different things. So that's it. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Pedro, do you think think the NHS is ready for this sort of technology or indeed will respond to it?
3: I would say, uh, typically, uh, I have a bit of an Americanized version of this in that government institutions tend to lag behind always a a little bit. So it's probably not ready yet. It will be a few years down the line. Um, So one of the things, for example, I wonder... uh, coming from a genetics perspective, would be you know, when are we going to start sequencing the genome of everyone? So a woman goes and gives birth to, the, to a hospital, goes home with a, with a baby and with a DVD with a genome sequence. Well, probably a, a little memory stick with it. Um, I, I do wonder when is that going to happen, because it's technologically possible now already, but how long is until we, we reach that stage?
1: But one of the things you were talking about and obviously addressing is the fact that people are getting older, uh, they're getting sicker. One of the simplest pieces of technology you could possibly have is the scales. You stand on it, you go, oh, my God. Or even simpler, you get a tape measure and you put it around your waist. Now, presumably, people are doing that, but it's not actually making any difference. Because they're not going, oh, my God, I'm putting on weight. They're going, oh, my God, I'm so depressed, I'll go off and eat a cake now. LAUGHTER <laughs> So there seems to me a huge gap between the technology and how people are responding to it. Maybe there are some people in California who go, you know...
2: So um, if, I can, uh, if I can say, so first of all, I'm not sure you were paying close attention to the slides because the tape measure has now been replaced by an app, so you don't <laughs> need that um, uh, physical thing anymore. It's just in the bottom corner of one of those. Um, but I, love, I really like the saying um, by the American author Maya Angelou, who says people will forget what you said, they will forget what you did, but they will never forget the way they made you feel. And I think if we truly want to um, work with our population as a medical profession and help them take up these latest, greatest things, it's how you make them feel. An example I would give is something that's been developed on the science park I work in in Essex on the MedTech campus at Anglia Ruskin University. And one of our chief informatics officers from Broomfield Hospital left his job because he wanted to develop what he saw was a real problem, which is how do you use smart devices in a sterile environment whether that's in the operating theater or on a chemotherapy unit and you can put them in a plastic bag but that doesn't work terribly well so he developed something called the Flippad, and it is the world's first sterile and re-sterilizable case for a smart device and he trialed it at the Great Ormond Street and the children who were undergoing chemotherapy um, I thought when he told me about this I thought on oh, surf the internet go on play a game the first thing they did was to Skype their granny because which child having chemotherapy wouldn't want to be comforted by their grandmother and which grandmother wouldn't want to comfort their child undergoing that. And everyone went, ah, so I've made you feel something about a piece of new technology. (laughs) How can we do that with technology if we're going to really impact people's lives? It's not just producing lots of Fitbits and things that people don't use very much. It's really making a difference. And we can't do that on our own as a profession, as doctors and and surgeons and others. It has to be in partnership with our patients, in partnerships with our citizens. We don't have all the right answers. I'm not going to know what's great. There are some fantastic examples of patient entrepreneurs out there developing technology. There's a chap called Michael Sirius who is the 11th bowel transplant patient in our country who um, noted that when he got a stoma bag you couldn't tell when it was going to be full and suddenly it would explode and you would be covered in contents so he developed uh, he took it out of a Wii game a little flexible uh, element put it on uh, his bag and it bluetooth to his smartphone to tell him when his stoma bag is half full it alerts it so he can go and empty it I have done countless numbers of colostomies and and bowel operations. When did I ever think that was a real problem that would make a difference to patients? Not once. So if we don't have citizens and patients at the heart of what we're doing as we redesign,
0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and NA member FDSE. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com
2: slash weight loss. Uh, healthcare and bring in all this new technology, we won't
1: get it right. Thank you. Um, our final speaker is Dr. Juan Pedro Magalesh. Um, forgive me if I got that one wrong. It was Close a good down. attempt. <laughs> Close enough. Yes. Um, and uh, he's a lecturer at Liverpool University. He also describes himself as a futurist, and apparently he used to be a stand-up comedian in <laughs> Belgium, in English. Yes. So That's this boring. is a man who knows no fear.
3: Thank you very much. Um, and what? And, um, thank and, and thank you for bringing that up. It, it just raises expectations. So I'm actually I come from a different background from the other speakers. I'm I'm a biologist, um, and I focus. My lab focuses on studying aging from a biological genetic perspective. I want to understand why we age and how can we manipulate aging. And I mean Tony already mentioned, you know, the the burden of chronic diseases to the NHS, um, and how because of the growing of the population, both in the UK and worldwide, really aging is the biggest challenge we face. And I mean I, I certainly argue that. Developing interventions to delay, maybe even stop or reverse aging, is the greatest um, enterprise of our time. Now, unfortunately, we still don't understand the process of aging very well. Um, some ideas, for example, that damage to the DNA accumulates with age and this drives the process of aging, but those are still hypotheses. That said, what I'll tell you today are two lines of evidence of how, at least in theory, it is possible to manipulate aging in human beings. Now, the first line of evidence comes from looking at extremely long-lived animals. Um, In fact, they're so long-lived that they appear not to age at all. Um, And this includes complex uh, vertebrates like some species of fish, some species of turtles, some types of salamanders. Um, And so what this shows is that natural selection can solve the problem of aging. At the very least, these species age much slower than human beings. Maybe they don't age at all. So aging is neither inevitable nor universal, which makes us think, well, then perhaps we can, at least in theory, also engineer a human species that does not age at all. Although all mammals, as far as we know, age, um, there's also exceptionally long-lived mammals. One of them is us, human beings. We are extremely long-lived compared to chimpanzees and and other primates. But there's two species that um, my lab is focusing on. Uh, One of them is the naked mole rat, um, which are these bizarre-looking rodents uh, that live underground. And we're interested in them not just because of their good looks, but (laughs) firstly because they live over 30 years, which is absolutely remarkable for a rodent. I mean, mice and rats, they live three to four years. And they're also extremely resistant to cancer. Now, the other species we focus on is the bowhead whale, and these are animals that live in the Arctic waters, and they've been estimated to live over 200 years. And of course, this is in the wild, without the NHS or hospitals or doctors, so um, they must have mechanisms to protect against diseases, in particular cancer, because if you think of these massive animals, um, they must have anti-tumor mechanisms that we lack. And so, by taking advantage, for example, of the dropping cost of DNA sequencing, uh, we've been analyzing the genomes of these animals to try to identify mutations that confer longevity and protect against age-related diseases, and hopefully one day we can apply this knowledge to human beings. Now, the other line of evidence that makes me think that we can at least retard the process of aging comes from traditional model organisms. Uh, As you might imagine, we cannot study aging in in human beings, uh, at least not test mechanistic hypotheses, so we have to rely on small, short-lived animals, like what you see here are worms, C. elegans are tiny, microscopic animals that live only a few weeks, um, and traditional models like mice and rats. And one of the greatest breakthroughs in the field of aging research in the past 20 years or so is that The process of ageing in animal models is surprisingly plastic. It can be manipulated. And in particular, at the genetic level, it's incredible how much we can manipulate it. So, for example, in worms, we can tweak one single gene amongst the the, the thousands in the genome, and we have worms that live ten times longer than normal. So, if we could apply that to humans, that would mean human beings living over a thousand years. Now, when we look at mammals, Um, the impact is not so great, but there are single mutations in mice that can extend lifespan by 50%. Again, if we could apply that to humans, there would be people living over 150 years. Um, And what is remarkable is that in these animals, they're not just living longer. They're living longer, healthier. In other words, age-related diseases are being postponed. The process of aging is being retarded, which is really what we want. We want a 70-year-old with the health of a 50-year-old. And... Now, of course, we cannot yet uh, apply easily gene therapy and genetic engineer to human beings, but really the way the field is going is in applying um, this knowledge from mechanisms involved and genes involved in longevity regulation, um, by developing lifestyle, by developing types of diet, and even by developing drugs that retard the process of aging. Um, and there are some examples already. For example, there's a drug called metformin, which is used as an anti-diabetic drug, and that is now, um, there's a clinical trial for aging being um, prepared in New York, which would be the first clinical trial for a drug to retard the process of aging. Um, So, I'm certainly very optimistic about this potential of longevity drugs, of reaching the the, the public in the coming uh, decades. Um, It's also important to mention the limitations. So, for example, one of the most exciting drugs at the moment in the field is rapamycin. And rapamycin extends lifespan very robustly across organisms, um, across mouse strains, but it extends lifespan about 15-20%. So it's not like the animals are not aging, they are still aging, just just age much slower. Um, So that is certainly on the horizon, uh, hopefully for all of us. Thank you very much. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Now, uh, one of the scary statistics I read recently was that a child born on Monday will um, live on average a day longer than a child born tomorrow. Uh, the longevity is doing that, that we now live... The life expectancy has increased in Britain by 10 years in the last 40 years. And we always thought it was going to slow down, but it shows no sign of slowing down. Who here actually wants to live to 200? Who's, who's voting for 200? Who wants to live with the same person for another 170 years? <laughs> you think, blimey. How is this going to affect things? <laughs> Very bold? I bold, okay. do that for my wife. <laughs> so, uh, you... C- what, what do you see as the sort of social and political and economic consequences of this sort of urge, or if you not urge, or this, this thing which is happening, that we are living longer, at least we're living longer in the affluent parts of the world? What do you reckon, Dan? Everybody wants to live longer in California, presumably. What do you think?
0: I, I think very few people want to live forever. That's a very long time. But... Uh... Um, it does have implications, like, you know, in the U.S., the, the retirement age is 65. That was based on the fact that 80, 90% of folks had were, were gone by that point. So how we structure our, our social systems, uh, how many times you get married when you have kids, how many jobs you have uh, are dramatically impacted. And like with many exponential technologies, the policy and the ethics
2: sometimes lag uh, the, uh, the, the, the facts. Tony? So, well, I think this is... Um where the National Health Service is going to come into its own and I think we're going to see systems across the world start to look at this big you know, test bed we've set up here in our National Health Service because we have a pooled risk model so if you're a private insurance company looking to have the lowest risk to insure a patient, if you've got their genetic screen from when they were born and came out of the maternity unit that tells you they're going to have a heart attack when they're 30 and if they survive that costly episode, they'll get this form of cancer and then they might get diabetes or, or they might uh, end up with dementia or something like that. Who is going to insure that person? So are you going to have discrimination against people on the base of your genes and genomics? And I think people are going to have to have legislation around the world to protect against that. But because we have a pooled risk, publicly funded system in this country, it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what your genes are, everyone is treated on the basis of need. So I think there's a lot of learning to come. And I think more and more countries, now they may have private pooled risk systems, but they're going to end up with pooled risk systems or otherwise, on the basis of the genes you were born with, you're going to be discriminated against.
1: How very interesting, because many people think that the NHS is on its last legs, and that actually we're going to be having shifting to a different form maybe an insurance based system
2: i think the uh, so i've been to multiple healthcare systems across the world and met people who work in uh, them and, and different organizations and people who run them and i think it's widely acknowledged as well as in the literature the most efficient cost effective way to run a national healthcare system is through a centrally funded taxation route time after time now there are lots of other things we may not have got quite right and um you know pound for pound i think so i think we spend uh 8.4 percent of our gdp on healthcare, and uh in the united states it's um, sorry daniel it's about 18 yep. percent and yet the average life expectancy of someone born in the united kingdom is one or two years longer than those born in the united states now there are all sorts of reasons for that but it's not just uh, spending more money and it's not all terrible about here. we have some tremendous opportunities we have the most someone a senior executive of a corporation i was talking to he said it's amazing in the nhs you have one of the crown jewels in the world's crown which is the data set in the national health service we have a unified system we're we're going to it's all going to be electronic in the next few years we're going to bring it together the insights we could gather that will make difference to um, healthcare populations across the world and we have a very diverse population not monoethic like some of the scandinavian countries who also have extensive electronic records. So I think far too often in our country do we do ourselves down. We should be really proud of what we've done. We provide high quality care right across the system. Can we do better? Yes, we can always do better. Of course we can. But I'm still proud to be a a frontline doctor in the NHS. So, Pedro,
1: you're working... (laughs) So, Pedro, you genuinely believe that there is a drug out there or there will soon be a drug out there that could actually slow the aging process?
3: Absolutely. And, I mean, one important thing um, to comment on is that although average uh, lifespan, life expectancy, has increased the past um, centuries even, um, this is not due to us aging slower now. It's due because... we have been targeting a number of individual diseases, uh, and that's why it continues to, to increase now. And if we could slow down the process of aging, even if slightly, then this would have a massive impact across a number of diseases. It would be great for the NHS because a lot of its costs are actually uh, in elderly individuals. So what you want is you want to extend L-span, make people healthier longer, um, which is good, of course, for all of us, and is also good for, from a financial uh, perspective. So you don't see a downside... Um, No, I don't think there's a downside in people being healthier for longer. No, I I think that that's what we want. I mean, I I don't think anybody here would like to have Alzheimer's disease. (laughs) I don't see a lot of hands being raised. So so people want to be healthy for longer. And, And from a financial perspective, again, from the NHS perspective, I think
1: it's very good as well. Okay, I think it's probably time to um, ask the audience what they think. Um, Anyone sticking up their hands and microphones?
0: Hi, thank you very much um, for your talk. I'm a student at Imperial College. I'm a medical student at Imperial College. Um, And I think it's so exciting, everything that you're talking about, but don't you think that living a good life is about more than just having, like, a healthy body. Isn't it about, like, social conditions, our working conditions, things like that? And when there's so much going on in the world where we can't even provide those basic resources, isn't it a bit... Doesn't it just seem like we should perhaps shift our focus to improving those other aspects of life that are so vital to living a good life, not just your healthy body?
1: Okay, so this is uh, an accusation of narcissism, that essentially <laughs> that you're just too obsessed with looking good. <laughs> what do you think? Is that a reasonable criticism or unfair? Do you think we should be looking more broadly at the human condition than really just obsessing about our glucose levels and our cholesterol levels and things like that?
0: Well, you can track your weight, your glucose, etc., but we know that our social connections are are really powerful, you know, loneliness kills. And we can now uh, uh, leverage folks who might be socially isolated. They can connect on social media. They can have friends and family uh, support their their healthy habits or their unhealthy ones. So there's a lot of ways that these uh, intertwine. It's not just the, the drugs or the weight or the, the diet that, that can be empowering, including the, uh, your, your workplace
2: um, and your ability to connect um, and learn and grow. So. So, I, I would say in um, response to that, so we've been supporting something that came up from people from the grassroots, an organization um, called uh, ESOP Arts and Entertainment with a Social Purpose, bringing the arts and healthcare together. There are a number of disparate groups going on, one was called Dance to Health. And they found that after you were elderly and you'd had a fall in a hospital, you went through this physiotherapy regime, which was quite intensive and one-to-one and quite expensively delivered. And it worked while you were with the therapist, but not so well after. Then a choreographer got together with the physiotherapist, took this proven physiotherapy falls regime, set the moves to dance, So a group of 30 people could get together in a room, learn how to dance, and have their physiotherapy. So it was much cheaper. But the most important thing was these people who were frightened, they'd had a fall and were feeling frail, actually got to meet new people, find new friends, increase their social networks rather than increase their social isolation. And when the program stopped... Most of the people who went along carried on doing it because they wanted to meet their new friends and, and carry on dancing and being healthy. So you're absolutely right. What, what's the point of existence, just for the sake of it, none, but with you know, the arts and with all those other wonderful things going on around in our lives that make life worth living? And I think that's a really important thing.
3: And I would just add that uh, it also correlates with longevity. So individuals who have more and stronger social connections, uh, they tend to live longer.
1: So you have a, an incentive there as well. It was interesting, I was um, talking to some Alzheimer's experts, and they were saying that really what you need to do if you want to put off Alzheimer's is develop a new skill every ten years. years—ballroom uh, dancing, stand-up comedian, whatever it might be. Um, so you just need to try and challenge yourself, and ideally it should be a social activity, which is why apparently dancing is really good. The other thing is um, taking up uh, painting, uh, lifestyle painting, so you have to stand for quite a long period of time. And take criticism so (laughs) right uh, another question where do we have we have do you want to take one over there and the lady over there I came to this um, talk and saw the title when death becomes optional I don't know what optional means but I'm looking forward to dying and i wonder whether anybody else is and because we haven't got the cards that we normally have with these debates where we can cut them off and say i want this and i'd prefer that i'd love to know how many people and particularly okay. with well, the, I panel, put it to the audience who wants to die who wants to without... die not necessarily this evening but <laughs> 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 sometime reasonably soon Uh, Nobody here putting up their hand. The question is Do you want any interference in keeping you aging longer? Yeah,
3: okay. So, so if I can make two comments. You mentioned how many people die in the world. I think last time I checked this, about 150,000 people die in the world each day. Um, And there's roughly about two thirds of them die from aging or age related diseases, diseases you would associate with aging. So, that's actually the majority of people die of aging. Um, And I would also say that as long as I'm healthy, I don't want to die. Ever. I mean, if I can live 10,000 years with good health, I would certainly take it. No blimey. Another question.
0: You've talked a lot about uh, diseases, Alzheimer's, diabetes, heart disease. Not a lot of talk about cancer, how the new technologies are for detecting cancer, early detection of cancer. OK. So what's the out, war, what's so out there for that?
1: The war on cancer was declared 45 years ago by Nixon. Have we made much progress? Will we make much yeah. progress? So briefly, I'm a pediatric oncologist, cancer doctor, and I think
0: it's a really exciting area in oncology today. Cancer is such a... I mean, even a lung cancer. It's one of thousands of molecular subtypes. So we're learning now to not just treat as lung cancer, but do the molecular analysis, the full-on sequence, apply things like IBM Watson to figure out what cocktail will be most specific to that particular tumor, and maybe sequence that repeatedly. We're now in the era of blood biopsies, where you can uh, now pull out small pieces of circulating DNA for screening or for modifying therapy. So, And now the immunotherapies are coming under board. So I don't think we're going to cure cancer, because it's so heterogeneous, but many are going to um, uh, change dramatically, particularly if we can pick them up again early.
1: Right. Um, who's got a microphone? Can we
3: go up in the balcony?
1: Girl on the balcony. Hello, person on the balcony. Hey, not a girl. <laughs> Hello, thank you. Thank you very much for
2: a, um, a great uh, talk. So, yeah, like uh, the lady there, uh, I've focused very much on the tagline. I was hoping after I paid my £30 I'd be able to opt out of death, but that doesn't sound like um, I've got that guarantee. Um, but you did mention right at the beginning about... Uh, calorie restriction so to what extent is that working is there any other evidence or any other suggestions that you've got that we can before we do ingestibles or anything else that we can actually with our current diet or anything else extend and my second question you can decide to take one or both or neither um, is to you Tony uh, in America 27% of people would like to fire their boss are you one of them? (laughs) (laughs) Pedro Pedro
1: Pedro,
3: I think you might I'll, take I'll, on the uh, calorie I'll, restriction. I'll too. comment on the calorie restriction um, <laughs> uh, aspect. Um. So, calorie restriction, that is, restricting the amount of diets you take keeping other nutrients uh, healthy, um, has been shown to extend lifespan across model organisms. Um, having said that, so for example, there are ongoing studies in rhesus monkeys that suggest health benefits, for example, at the level of cancer. So animals, rhesus monkeys, uh, take, under caloric restriction have a much lower cancer incidence. Whether they live longer or not, it's more debatable. Um, I think a lot depends on what you consider a normal diet. My take uh, would be that if you already have a healthy or relatively healthy diet, caloric restriction is unlikely to have uh, great health benefits for you. Uh, and people have asked me, do I do caloric restriction? I've never tried caloric restriction. I've never done caloric restriction. Um, and I, I would only do it if I had, or I would only consider it if I had cancer.
1: But that's, of course, a personal perspective. Yeah, who
0: wants to live to 100 if you're hungry and cranky the whole time?
1: Right? So... <laughs> there are actually quite a few people mm. called cronies, <laughs> calorie, calorie restrictions on optimal nutrition. The trouble is we're not going to know for about another 100 years whether it's worked.
0: Well, because nutrition, actually, we talked a bit about this before, yeah. You know, there's all these bad diets, it's hard to know which one really works or not. We're going to hopefully enter an era of you know, personalized-tuned diets based on your microbiome, your age, other elements, and you may take a, a milkshake every day with your right mix. Um, or to stimulate what, what calorie restriction might do, which is activating certain genes which might affect the, the, the biological clock. So uh, I think there's a lot to do with nutrition um, in many ways.
1: But I think one of the interesting challenges is going to be to the randomized controlled trial, because that's been the gold standard until now. We get the half of you and the other half, and we give you a drug, say, for cancer, and maybe 60% of you get better compared to the placebo group. Uh, but, but the reality is there may be... A, Subsection over there who do fantastically well on this drug, uh, but on average, statistically, it didn't work, so the drug gets chucked out. Mm -hmm. Do you think there is kind of going to be a future where we are much better at selecting, sort of, as you say, diet, drugs, or things like that? making truly personalized medicine.
0: So to get to personalized medicine, it's not just our genome or microbiome or our digital data. It's integrating it all together. And we're starting to see companies like uh, Craig Venter, who was one of the first to sequence a genome, have a company called Human Longevity Incorporated, or Lee Hood with a company called Aravale, where for a lot of money today, you can get sequenced MRI, microbiome, etc. And we're starting to mash up these data sets and be able to look at them and pick up disease early-tuned behavior, manage therapy. So again, it's going to be an integration of a lot of these elements that'll help move the needle.
1: Okay, another question. Who's got the microphone? Lots of questions. Oh, uh, manimo down here. And uh, could you just say yes, please? Short Hello. questions. We like short questions.
2: I'll try. Um, okay, so I understand that all the technology and everything is very exciting, and we want to use all of it as much as possible. But I feel that we're kind of um, forgetting that human touch is very important in the process of healing? And how do you think that we can build systems that can incorporate both?
1: Okay, is it possible to have the technology, to have the love and afford it all?
0: Well, we know human touch is important. Even uh, children in neonatal intensive care units, if you touch them more, they survive and thrive better. I think we can have some digital digital touches. If I'm your physician and I don't see you for a month, but I can give you little nudges, or um, you can program empathy. I mean, these feedback loops, there's a company in San Francisco called Health Loop. When you go home from a knee surgery or a hip implant, it'll uh, check in on you. And if you're starting to fall off uh, the wagon, it'll have you called by the nurse. So we can enhance some Do of those Do you see
1: elements. robots coming along and giving you a hug? Well, we're... A robot not. physician coming along
0: and, you know... Telepresence so. robots are here. We talk about aging. No one wants to be in a nursing home. Uh, we want to age in place, in a sense, and we're seeing robotics come to the home to, you know, pick up your socks and do your floors and help you if you might fall. So uh, robotics is coming really fast in many ways. Okay. Just look at self-driving cars. I mean, uh, the elderly who can't get around can jump in a, a self-driving Uber pretty soon and get where they want to go.
1: Okay, so do you see robots, touchy-feely robots, coming in, laying a hand on your knee and going, how are you? I'm not sure that that's
2: uh, uh, the future, but um, certainly, um, to the questioner's point, um, social isolation and increasing social isolation is a really important thing, and uh, you won't be surprised to hear me say the NHS conducted the largest (laughs) ever randomised trial in the history of our planet on telehealth. Um, And we spent 23 million pounds on it about seven eight years ago now and uh, we looked at giving some people some very expensive kit and technology in their homes to manage their chronic conditions at home and then randomized another group who got standard care and it turns out that although Uh, health utilization of services went down initially in the group who were given the technology. Eventually, their use of their local healthcare services went back to the average that the non-telehealth group had, and the reason was because that their social interactions with others around them went down, and they felt more socially isolated. So we had to spend that money to tell us, if you use technology and it leads to increased social isolation, It's not going to be taken up. So it's how do we use these things to increase social inclusion, to make people feel more of our communities, more with their families and their friends around them.
1: You see, I slightly worry, I must admit, about the fact the rise of social media, we see the rise of mental health disorder in younger and younger people, in kids and things like that. The um, the technology is not bringing them together. If anything, it is basically driving them apart. Or am I just being a reactionary? That is a rhetorical question. <laughs> let's let's go on to a real question. Back yeah. on
3: the balcony again. Sorry, a little bit of shameless
0: self-promotion here. Um, I'm a digital creative working for Sapient Nitro, and we would love to work with any of you on, on the panellists on, on, pro- on a project health related project um, my first question is mostly for tony when do you actually foresee is there anybody actually trying to move this behemoth closer to digitizing all this information so that's one question okay uh, i'm
1: gonna to have to cut you off there i think one yeah. question is enough okay <laughs> so the first question so um essentially me. are we you talk about big data or how big data is going to transform the world change the thing you're gonna you know all this lovely stuff coming out of cars when are we actually going to get something So, uh,
2: well, in the digitalization of the NHS, we have a plan, a robot. If you go to the NHS England website and Google that, it'll set that out can't give you the exact timelines. I think it's around two to three years' time we're going to be paperless within the NHS, and we've committed some budget to doing that. And with we're still, it turns out, we're still, I think, the largest purchaser on the planet of fax machines. I thought, I thought <laughs> they had all <laughs> Something to be proud of. So um, German we do fax machines. But that, <laughs> that is yeah. going. There is a, um, and we've got an, uh, a strategy and a number of funds in place to help us deliver on that. So it is coming, and it's not going to be easy, um, but we are committed to doing and delivering on that.
1: Okay, Daniel, when's um, the big data going to change my life? Well,
0: big data, again, we're this explosion of information from genomics to digital steps. Um, now the machine learning on top of that can make some really interesting insights, whether it's reading x-rays or if you can mine the NHS data sets, you can um, learn to identify the populations at risk. You can map neighborhoods and see uh, where there might be outbreaks much earlier and more proactively. So... Um, the new sexy profession is data scientist, so go through there and get your data science degree, because that's a big unmet need, and there's huge implications for all sorts of fields. Okay,
1: Pedro, there's going to be lots of data out there. Is any there, of it going to be exciting? There's a lot of exciting, I
3: think, from the field of aging and longevity, for example, in understanding centenarians. Why do they live so long? One of the interesting, actually, things about centenarians is that um, they also have uh, what's called a compression of morbidity in, in the sense that they don't develop a lot of diseases until they're really old. So they're actually a, um, a good... Their costs are very relatively low for things like the NHS. Um, one of the big challenges we still face from a biology level is that we don't understand well why they live so long. Uh, we know a lot about genetics of aging in model animals, but we don't know so well about human beings. So from that perspective, this, this big explosion in data and sequencing lots of individuals, uh, we're certainly optimistic that it's going to change all that. Uh, and and in, few years, we will have the information we need to understand why centenarians live so long. Okay. um, One final question from up there on the balcony. Thank you very much. Um, I want to bring it back to medical ethics. We've touched on it a little bit, but I want to talk about one of the principal medical ethical concerns of autonomy. And my question is technological developments are increasing lifespan without patients necessarily asking for it. And I wonder what limits you would set on how long technology increases lifespan and a follow-up question just uh, to Professor uh, de on um, on the worms that you increased longevity in was the ultimate death more complex and more catastrophic than in the worms that you didn't genetically uh, alter?
1: So just as we basically say you're not allowed to drive more than 70 miles an hour on the motorway should we basically go you're not allowed to have more than 90 years, get over it if you want 120 years you're greedy no way What do you think? uh...
2: So you're asking a man who does prostate exams what he thinks about patient autonomy. which is what I spend <laughs> half of I, I my life doing. I'm trying to make doing. the link. What's, uh, right, what's the, the link? So, I, so I'm not... It is one of the fundamental tenets of medical ethics, um, uh, autonomy, and it's something that has to remain right at the heart of everything we do when we're taking things forward um, about those individuals. So I'm, I'm not going to claim to be something I'm not and have some, a great answer to those things. I'm a frontline clinician who respects the autonomy of patients in, in everything I do, and I think more and more, through what, whether it's the GMT guidelines or the professional, guidelines and things we have through our colleges and things that's at the heart we practice whether you're a doctor in America or in this country that's the heart of what we practice I think it is a really important debate to have around those things but I think those options are out there and they're being presented I didn't ask if uh, maybe I was asked if I wanted my mapping app on my phone to contribute to the pool of data that was telling me whether I was going to be stuck in a jam but actually I'm quite glad that it does happen on those things so it's a really important thing and we mustn't forget that in the debate as we move forward I agree
1: Okay. Uh, Thank you very much to our panellists, and uh, it's been brilliant. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.